Welcome to the Restore Body Balance podcast, where we take an integrative approach combining psychology, biology, and neurology to enact life changes that stick. I'm Colleen Burns, licensed psychotherapist and founder of Restore Body Balance. And I'm Nico Yatanis, co-producer of this podcast. In today's episode, we will compare several of the top diets and decide if there's one right approach. Colleen, I know you're well-versed in nutrition as you sought an integrative nutrition certification from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition while researching the mind-body connection, learning all about the microbiome and the brain-gut axis, not to mention applying all of this knowledge to your programs using nutrition as a catalyst to change your moods. I'm interested in your take on these diets, so where could we start? Thanks, Nico. There's been a surge in recent years regarding high-fat, low-carb diets, and with that, many conflicting pieces of information on what is and what is not good for you. So most of us start down a path and then get overwhelmed. I know I have. When we were studying at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, we were encouraged to actually try out for a week or two the different diets or lifestyles that we studied. So I actually have been through the ringer more than one time. Or we actually sometimes look to celebrities that influence our choices. And of course, we experiment on what works for us individually. Nutrition is complex. The concept of bio-individuality is what makes most sense here for our listeners and really everyone. And I echo the phrase, one person's food is another person's poison. So it really is the same when it comes to nutrition. There is no one perfect way of eating that works for everyone. Each person has a very specific need, perhaps to his or her own health, according to age, constitution, gender, size, lifestyle, and even their own ancestry. I'll admit, even I've fallen for the celebrity diets influencing my own diet, from Tom Brady and Nightshades that we've mentioned in the past, to Kourtney Kardashian trying to control her arsenic intake by measuring her blood. I think it's all interesting stuff that we learn from these people, but we do have to remember that everyone has their own specific needs when it comes to nutrition. So that said, how will we approach this topic even though everyone's nutrition needs are different? Well, Nico, today we're going to discuss the concept of macros. Macros are the essentials in terms of fueling the body, in terms of fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. We then break these down in terms of, do we do low carb and high fat? Do we do low carb and high protein? And of course, low carb and something in the middle. And then again, why low carb, right? This is the big rage that's going on right now and and for quite some time. So going back to 2015, the World Health Organization, or WHO, published new guidelines on sugar intake which urged governments to reduce the intake of what we call quote-unquote free sugars in adults and children. Free sugars include any sugar that is added to a product by manufacturers, cooks, or consumers, or even the sugar that's naturally present in syrups, honey, and fruit juice. 
then the US in 2015 through 2020 changed their dietary guidelines for Americans and recommended restricting added sugars to no more than 10% of daily calories. So the question became, how much sugar, and more widely, carbohydrates in general, should we be consuming? It seems that many diets avoid carbohydrates altogether, although I'm not sure if that's the right approach. And I know sugar is hidden in so many products, ingredients, and processed foods that it seems we could end up getting way more than our recommended daily intake. <laughs> You're exactly right, Nico. Carbohydrates include starches and sugars, as well as fiber that's found in fruit, vegetables, and pulses. And by the way, pulses is an edible seed that grows in a pod. So think dry beans, dry broad beans, dry peas, chickpeas, lentils, and grains. So when looking at the term macronutrients, carbohydrates are one of the three main ways our body obtains energy or calories. The other two, as we said, are protein and fat. So what exactly are macronutrients? Well, the definition, it's a type of food, right? So it's a fat, protein, or carbohydrate, and they're required in large amounts in a diet. And another definition could be a chemical element like potassium, magnesium, calcium, also required in large amounts, especially for plant growth and development. The bottom line is when it comes to carbohydrates, it's do we limit the free sugars and eat fruits and vegetables in an array of colors, which generally is what is recommended, scientifically speaking. And also, do we just avoid the refined carbohydrates? In terms of getting low-carb, Nico, low-carb diets have been popular in our Western world for some time now, by and large focusing on weight loss. Low-carb diets usually restrict carbohydrates to less than 20% of your energy intake. They are also high in protein and fat, or one or the other. There's also other benefits, believe it or not, to doing something in terms of like a ketotarian diet, especially when it comes to type 2 diabetes, heart health, cardiovascular issues, and inflammation. So low-carb diets could help prevent inflammation? Yes, our good old friend inflammation that we seem to talk about at least every week. Yes, too much sugar can also cause inflammation, and some foods can cause an inflammatory response. Remember, inflammation is not necessarily bad. It's a response to danger, an infection, a cut, and basically, let's go back to food, when we're eating too much sugar, especially refined sugar or processed food, you can create chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation has been linked to a number of serious illnesses such as heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, etc. And we know that also, to go back to my IIN degree, is that sugar feeds sugar. So sometimes when you're hungry, just after eating, it's usually because there was too much sugar present, maybe in the form of carbohydrates, and those bugs or bacteria need more to survive. So they actually start craving more sugar. I never knew that. That explains a lot, 
especially the after-dinner dessert cravings. <laughs> that is exactly right. So let's review the three sources of energy that we spoke of. Let's take fat, for example. Not all fats are created equal. Fat is fat-dependent, meaning it depends on the types of fatty acids that it's made up of. All dietary sources of fat contain both saturated and unsaturated fatty acids, but they are described as either quote-unquote saturated fat or quote-unquote unsaturated fat. And again, according to the proportions of fatty acids present. So for example, butter is described as a saturated fat because it has more saturated fatty acids, while vegetable oils, which are described as unsaturated fats because they contain higher proportions of these. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So now that it is well recognized that we need to have that balance of fatty acids rather than the amount of fat in the diet, that's an important consideration. So let's quickly review. Saturated fat comes from mainly animal sources of food, cheese, fatty red meats, and processed meats, not to mention full-fat dairy. Saturated fats raise blood cholesterol levels, and by the way, the bad form of blood cholesterol that we hear as LDL. And the high consumption of these have been linked to heart disease, stroke, and type 2 diabetes. Trans fat occurs naturally in very small amounts, but most trans fats are made from oils through food processing method called partial hydrogenation. So when you see that term hydrogenated oils, that's where this is coming from. And it's used to harden vegetable oils in the form of a semi-solid, helping to improve their shelf life. They also increase your LDL cholesterol even more than saturated fats. So the potentially healthy dietary fats are the unsaturated ones, like monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, both of which have been studied and have been shown to reduce blood cholesterol levels when they replace saturated fat in a diet. So let's look at monounsaturated fats. Those are found in high amounts in things like olive oil, peanut oils, also avocados, nuts, and seeds such as pumpkin and sesame. Polyunsaturated fats are the most, let's say, widely seen in plant-based foods and oils like sunflower, sesame, soya, and spreads that are made from these, as well as flax seeds, pine nuts, sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, and walnuts. Omega-3 fatty acids are a type of polyunsaturated fatty acid that has been shown to have many health benefits like reducing the risk of heart disease, and these are found in fatty fish like salmon, sardines, and mackerel. There's also plenty of omega-3s in my favorite bread, Dave's Bread. I use it to make avocado toast, which could be another healthy fat source. But then again, bread has a lot of carbs. So that said, what about carbohydrates, Colleen? 
Well, that's a great question, and I love avocado toast, although I tend to go for the sourdough, not as healthy as <laughs> Dave's, uh, although I love Dave's. Um, so speaking of carbohydrates, as we mentioned, a carbohydrate is the body's main source of energy for physical activity and is also needed by the brain. Starchy foods, particularly whole grains and other forms, are good sources of uh, pretty much the number of important vitamins and the minerals that we need, not to mention fiber. And again, we need to look where these starches or carbs coming from. So you might want to limit, if not cut out, those sugars that we referred to as free sugar and refined carbs. Looking to complex carbohydrates whole grains, but really the true whole grains and vegetables with high fibers. Like, so for example, you know, what I learned at IIN is that our grain structure from what we grow now in terms of wheat is very, very different than what we grew, you know, a very long time ago. Let's put it that way. And also, did you know, Nico, for example, that carrots and onions are also high in carbohydrates? I had no idea. I knew potatoes had a lot of starch, but never knew carrots and onions were also high in carbohydrates. Yes, but they're nutrient dense, so better than a donut. <laughs> so what aspect of our diets are we diving into next, Colleen? Well, let's look at some protein. Proteins are large molecules that are made up of long chains of amino acids. And they're often referred to as our building blocks, if you've heard that term. There are about 20 different amino acids commonly found in plant and animal proteins. And it's complicated from there. <laughs> so we can get into the type of protein that is dependent on the sequence and the characteristic of that constituent amino acid. So let's just move forward from the science. The main sources of protein include meat, fish, eggs, milk, cheese, cereals, breads, nuts, and pulses. And proteins can also be categorized as indispensable or dispensable. Indispensable amino acids are essential in that they cannot be made by the body. So your animal proteins tend to mimic what humans do. The dispensable ones can be converted by the body from an indispensable one. So take protein from animal sources. Because they have a higher biological value as they contain higher amounts of indispensable amino acids. But our vegan friends and their lifestyles do just fine by varying their combination of plant proteins. I'm not vegan, but I do prefer plants when possible, and I try to stay away from eating too much dairy. My personal favorite protein is hemp protein, and there are a couple of protein powders on the market that advertise a full amino acid profile combining multiple plant-based proteins. But with all protein powders, you have to look at the ingredients and look at what's actually in them because they could be laced with artificial sweeteners, chemicals, and many more things. You're right, Nico, and that's word to the wise. Um, that is something to look out for, and you know that is where some of our podcasts and our friends have a lot of great literature and well-vetted science to what might be the best for them. Not to mention what jives with us, right? Because certain things. Don't 
don't do well. So whereas the hemp protein might do for you, it might sort of cause me some GI distress, for example. So now that we know about fats, carbohydrates, and proteins, let's take one particular lifestyle and compare it to others. I don't like to use the word diet because it is laced and laid in with restriction, which is never good. So I'm going to use lifestyle. Well, we could look at keto versus Whole30, that popular diet. Also keto maybe versus the South Beach diet. And then keto versus paleo. And by the way, for our listeners and to you too, Nico, I have tried them all. So let's look at keto. And I know you've had some experience, I think, with with some people with keto, Nico, but keto calls for getting 70% of your calories from fat. And I know that's staggering. Most of us have a visceral reaction when we hear that. But you're stimulating your body's production of what we call ketones as your super fuel that is produced from fat cells when they need to be used to generate energy. So the body burns its own fat for fuel. So here with the keto diet, that's where the name comes from. If you're not using a lot of protein to be converted to energy and you're not using a lot of carbohydrates and in fact just very few, then your body is forced to tap into fat stores to burn for energy and they get released in the forms of ketones. One of my favorite gurus out there would be Dr. David Perlmutter, who is the author of many books, but specifically the popular The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan. In fact, that's where he has a lot of studies that show consuming this amount of fat in terms of keto with a limited amount of protein and nearly under 20 carbs a day also can help with not just weight loss, but mood, memory, body aches and pains, and even stimulating hair growth, easing wrinkles, and potentially some better sleep. That's really fascinating. I guess I had this preconceived notion that keto was bad based on a couple of experiences I had with some people I know that were on the keto lifestyle. For example, two of my roommates in college were on the keto lifestyle, and I began to be skeptical of how good it was for you because it seemed like they only ate meat breakfast, they ate chicken on a plate, nothing else. The restrictions were so significant, but maybe they took it to an extreme. So what about incorporating plants, like a Whole30 diet? That's a great question. And you know, just to go back to the keto diet, because I think it gets either a very good rap or a bad rap, it also encourages a lot of green plants and vegetables and eating an array of, you know, high fiber and nutrient dense sources. And it's an interesting thing. When I had to go through my experiments, I'm not a huge meat person. And so, um, you know, I've struggled with, with these various diets along the way because I would prefer to eat, you know, more of a vegan lifestyle, but my body actually requires protein. So I don't feel well when I don't eat animal protein but there's very few (laughs) types of animal protein that I'm actually amenable to. So the keto diet was appealing to me once I got through the fat. But if I ate fat in terms of olive oils, nuts, seeds, nut butters, ghee, and avocado, and I made a huge salad with maybe some avocado and sprinkling of greens and a very small protein portion, 
it actually worked quite well. So I just wanted to sort of add that anecdotally um, to our listeners is that again, you know, trying different diets also allows you to see what works for you going back to that bioavailability type of lifestyle. So let's go back to your question, keto versus Whole30. Well, the Whole30 program is really what we call an elimination diet. So it's a way to get off sugar and various processed foods. Followers abstain from soy, dairy, grains, alcohol, legumes, and any added sugars. And yes, you do this for 30 days straight. The focus is similar that the whole foods are just, you know, eating things again, shopping from around the perimeter of the supermarket, and you're eliminating processed foods that are also chemical free and that makes the diet very similar to keto. The differences are that Whole30, that diet gives you an opportunity, or I should say lifestyle, gives you an opportunity to eat a heavy carb fruit and vegetable like bananas, sweet potatoes that you can't have on keto. Keto keeps it to berries and berries are more of a treat. Also, Whole30 focuses on the type of food rather than the macronutrient content like keto. And again, I like that better because you're really looking at nutrient-dense food. So you're really feeding your body the most uh, powerful forms of vitamins and minerals that it can get. But Whole30 is really designed to do it for 30 days, whereas keto pretty much becomes a lifestyle. That's really interesting. Maybe a combination of the two could be a good strategy. I know controversy exists on whether the excessive intake of meat and dairy could contribute to disease and disrupt hormones, but I digress. Let's move on to another popular diet trend. What about the South Beach diet? I remember seeing that everywhere around 10 years ago, and even the protein bars that were called the same thing. Yes, the good old South Beach diet. Dr. Arthur Agustin in the 1990s, I think, um, developed this diet that prioritizes lean proteins and unsaturated fats that we just learned about. So like keto, it restricts carbohydrates. Its name comes from the location of Dr. Agustin's cardiology practice, which of course was in the famous South Beach area. The difference is that South Beach was developed as an alternative to the Atkins diet, if you remember that. And Dr. Agatston was concerned that the high amounts of the saturated fats that you mentioned were unhealthy for those with heart disease, thus in contrast with keto. So that encourages both fats of both kinds and the main fuel for energy. But also, the South Beach does not restrict good carbs that are high in fiber, like fruit and whole grains. Are there any other popular diets to compare? Well, I guess the last one that would be similar to keto would be paleo. Similar to paleo, named derived, of course, from eating foods based on what we think was present back in the Paleolithic era, aka the Stone Age, or what people sometimes refer to as the caveman diet. It mainly has us eating meats, fish, fruit, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. So foods that could only be obtained from hunting and gathering. It is similar to keto in that they both encourage a whole food diet, 
refraining from refined processed foods full of sugar and sugar substitutes. The difference is, is that paleo excludes butter and cheese as dairy was not present back then. And these are an integral part of the keto diet. Another big difference is the amount of carbohydrate intake. And there is no ketosis here. And we'll explain that in a minute. There's a great resource that supports the paleo claim of avoiding dairy and cheese. It's a very interesting but not well-known resource. It's called the China Study, and the subtitle of the book is The Most Comprehensive Study of Nutrition Ever Conducted and the Startling Implications for Diet, Weight Loss, and Long-Term Health. My former pediatrician, who is a family friend, suffered two heart attacks, and he decided to alter his diet. In his search, he found the China Study, and he swore by it. He actually gave speeches on it. And I'm reading it now on the Libby app, the virtual Boston Public Library app, and it is a fascinating read. I'll have to check that out, Nico. I love that. And I also absolutely love learning new information every day. So I will check that out. But really, in the end, whether you adopt low fat, high fat, no fat, the question remains, are all calories equal? So let's get into it. A calorie which is a bit simplistic, the definition is a unit of energy. So when you look at the labeling of our food, you have to look at a food calorie actually referring to a kilocalorie or 1,000 calories. That is one food calorie equals one kilocalorie. And there are a number of factors that influence the impact of different food on the energy available to the body. And again, there are three energy sources providing nutrients, like we talked about with fat, carbohydrate, and protein. It's protein that has the highest absolute energy compared with its metabolizable energy. There is a greater amount of energy that is used to fuel metabolic forms of protein. We can overcomplicate this, Nico, and get into it, but for the sake of everybody, let's just break it down. In the early 1970s, a discovery was made that took into account the division of total carbohydrate into the available carbohydrate and fiber. And carbohydrates were given a new value, 3.75 per gram to be exact. Most recently, research also looked at the digestibility of food. So take almonds. So nuts were often rejected as too caloric, but studies have shown that 20% of their calories are not available for digestion or absorption because the nuts are fibrous in their walls. But because they have low digestibility, it encourages us to have a handful of nuts because consuming their fiber results in the excretion of the fiber, but also fat and nitrogenous substances, which has a value. And basically, if we pass it quicker, the less food is digested and absorbed. So we feel full, but we don't get all the fat. I saw this picture once of the outline of our stomach that stuck with me. It showed 400 calories of oil, 400 calories of chicken, and 400 calories of vegetables. Clearly the veggies won out in terms of fullness. 
hence the term empty calories. I saw that, uh, Nico, and I can't remember where, but if we picture what the organ of the stomach looks like and we put, let's say, a very thin line of oil, then you have this gaping part that's still empty. And then you have, let's say, a couple of drumsticks. You're about a quarter of the way full. But if you pack your stomach with, let's say, a head of broccoli and some cauliflower and some carrots and some beans, and like next thing you know, your stomach is full. So yes, that is where the term empty calories came from. Great analogy. And if we look to eat whole foods and those that are not processed, and readily available are going in the right direction. So actually, a great deal of research supports the ketotarian diet, combined with the Mediterranean diet that we examined in the Blue Zones podcast. Low-carb diets usually restrict carbohydrates to less than 20% of energy intake. These diets, such as Atkins, South Beach, and Paleo, and of course Keto, are also high in protein and fat, and it increases our satiety. So you actually feel full and then possibly eat less in terms of your physical appetite that's in control. What do you mean by physical appetite? Does this go back to a past podcast episode where we discussed what are you hungry for? Great memory, Nico. That is exactly right. And maybe we could have another podcast on psychological hunger. But again, I'm not plugging keto, but why these diets of high fat seem to be so popular and successful. You know, I say in my book, Prescription for Change, Using Your Lifestyle as Medicine, at the end of a very stressful day, you're not coming home and steaming green beans. And if you are, neuroscientists want to scan your brain. (laughs) But eating cheese and hamburgers, along with maybe some almond flour and cassava flours that have come out that you could do, you know, pancakes with, baked bread with, cauliflower crust for a pizza or zucchini noodles or zoodles as they call them, you almost feel like you're just eating regularly. And don't forget, we've been probably doing this for a very long time. So that goes back to that habituated brain that we've often talked about. So we could also incorporate these type incorporate these types of diets into our home meals and just sub out the starchy pasta bread for the vegetables. A study in the New England Journal of Medicine found that people who ate a low-carb diet lost more weight when receiving the conventional, you know, in contrast to a low-fat diet for six months. And again, let's not forget, different people have different needs, especially those with cardiovascular issues, diabetes, and the like. But let's just go back to that phrase of shopping the perimeter of the store. So you look at the Whole Foods, you look at your aisles, right? If I go to my local Whole Foods here in Boston or Brookline, you know, I start off, they're all the fresh fruits and then the veggies and then the cheeses and then the fish and then the meat and the produce. And by the time you get back around, you might skip the bakery, but you're back at the checkout. It's when we really get into the aisles that we get into trouble, where we have the chips, the snacks, the cookies, and basically packaged food that doesn't need to be refrigerated or has a better shelf life. So just shopping the perimeter for fresh fruits, veggies, grass-fed, antibiotic-free meats and poultry, healthy cheeses and olives, we would do just fine looking at these diets in general. 
The bottom line is grains are different from our original harvest, like I said, and that's a whole different podcast, Nico, because now our grains are genetically modified and sometimes laced with pesticides. We eat too much sugar and industrial oils, all resulting in that inflammation. So we traditionally speak of inflammation and fight or flight response, but food causes inflammation as well. And my favorite Dr. Weil has a wonderful book called The Low Inflammatory Diet, which again speaks to health. I'll have to check out that book, Colleen. Even with innovative grocery stores like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, they really make these healthy hacks accessible and fast, changing the way we approach fast foods. For example, cauliflower rice is in the frozen section at Trader Joe's for $1.99 a bag. That's amazing, and I know I can buy my frozen cauliflower crust for pizza that I dose a huge dollop of arugula on, which was on my Instagram, by the way, from you know my uh, favorite pizza place around the corner, Dante's Pizza here in Brookline. So again, let's just take what we've said and try to look at the one diet that does incorporate everything that we know. And I will echo that all diets are restrictive, so we really want to look at lifestyle. But if you could do a Whole30, or you could do a Keto, or a Paleo, or an Atkins, or you know even Weight Watchers, you're really looking at eliminating the carbohydrates in a bad way, and looking at good fats that come from organic or pasture raised if possible for poultry, wild fish, and you know pork. In terms of dairy, we wanna look at very good grass-fed butter and ghee, which is clarified butter. Also maybe looking at if you're not dairy intolerant, you know, good healthy cottage cheese or good Greek yogurt or the harder cheeses that have fewer carbohydrates. And then even some of the toppings that we might put on our meat and poultry, things like creme fraiche or sour cream to make sauces. Then we also look at the healthy oils like avocado, coconut, flaxseed, and olive oil, avoiding the hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated oils. And then our fatty fruits like avocados and olives, nut seeds, and nut butters, especially looking at chia, flax, pumpkin seeds, and nuts like pecans, almonds, and walnuts. In general, if we want to avoid processed foods and fast foods, we have to look at not having things that are fried and skipping the McDonald's line and really just looking at unhealthy vegetables that might be fried in high polysaturated fats. So basically, that's the take-home message. And if we just look at that Mediterranean diet along with cutting out the hydrogenated oils and refined carbs and excess sugar, we'll do just fine. Those all sound like great suggestions, Colleen. And as you said before, everyone has their own dietary needs. So use your own discretion when choosing a diet that works with you. And then we have to look at glyphosate, which sometimes is a pesticide and our grains are laced with that. It's a herbicide that may prevent the liver enzymes from metabolizing fat and other chemicals. So again, we really have to go back to where are we getting our food, sourcing it, you know, locally and again, grass fed, free roaming and pesticide free. Yeah, on the subject of glyphosate, this is important to look out for, especially with oats and wine. Glyphosate is in most oats and wines produced in the U.S. 
My friend Conrad grew up in Sweden and he showed me Oatly oat milk way before it arrived in the US. And one of the best things I noticed about it was when it made its way to the US, it made sure it sourced its oats from glyphosate-free oats. Not to mention the max exodus of one of the most popular wine brands when news came out that the vineyard that produced the grapes for the wine used Roundup Weed Killer, which is a form of glyphosate. Oh, that is so frightening, Nico. And you're right. They've even come out with some sugar-free wines and even sulfate-free wines, which I know that is up for grabs, but I swear to God, as much as I love red wine, I get a stuffy nose the next day. So I'm still on that train. (laughs) All right. So in summation, let's try and toss the word diet and instead move to the title of my book, Prescription for Change, Using Your Lifestyle as Medicine. Lifestyle is the key word here. Diets are associated with deprivation. And again, if we go back to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, where I got my health coaching certification, we want to use the term crowding out. So maybe not look at what we're taking out, but putting out good things, crowding out the bad ones. Also, let's not, you know, get overwhelmed with the idea of getting off our couches and getting into high gear. We really sometimes just need to chill out instead, which goes back to my meditation and mindfulness that I echo every week in our podcast. In some ways, our current climate has us leaning into this idea of relaxing, staying at home, investing in ourselves and our families from relaxing or learning to relax and getting comfortable being uncomfortable. We're just so used to that go, go, go mentality and, you know, weekend warriors working out. And remember, we can either stress or digest. And that's not to mention our friend cortisol that's always messing with our feelings of hunger and satiety. Food is not a moral value, but in some foods, we actually do feel differently. So it's all about balance, right, Nico? which is why we call ourselves Restore Body Balance. So just a few takeaway tips. Change our relationship with food. Food builds us and we are worth every penny we put in our bodies. So shop the perimeter and eat an array of colorful fruits and vegetables. Choose exercise that you enjoy from walking to ultimate frisbee, yoga, even dance. Get that serotonin and those endorphins flowing. And maybe even have a mantra, like, Nico, you designed that beautiful journal in the back of the book, and that's why my programs are so popular, is that you actually wake up with intention and you talk about, you know, your identity, not to mention I have you tick the box for nutrition and movement. And let's not forget gentle, loving kindness. It's a journey. And then write down your accomplishments, which is why I asked you to do the journal to begin with. It holds us accountable and makes us feel good. We're not looking at the bad, we're writing down the good. At SMART, which stands for Stress Management and Resiliency Training at the Mass General Hospital in concert with the Harvard University Department of Psychiatry, There, we were encouraged to focus on the positive. And I think we said this last week, positive expectation and cognitive reappraisal. So don't beat yourself up at the end of the day if you didn't do things exactly right or eat perfectly. It's you gave it your best effort and tomorrow's a new day. 
And then just lastly, strategy, which is why my program and other programs work, especially in looking at a health coach like myself. I call myself an integrative health counselor because I actually use the combination of psychology, biology, and neurology where we lean into our habits. That's where we use this combination to enact life changes that stick. Thank you, Colleen. You gave us a rundown of basically all of the most popular diets, and we learned good practices for deciding our own nutrition and the concept of bioindividuality. And we learned the importance of integrative health programs like your own. So if those of you listening want to check out our programs, you can visit us on the web at www.RestoreBodyBalance.com. And if you want to read the book on change, you can visit www.RestoreBodyBalance.com book. And it's also available on Amazon. It's called Prescription for Change, Using Your Lifestyle as Medicine. If you want to hear more from us, click the subscribe button and we will see you next week.